0: How many of you ever had a bad day? I'm talking about the kind of day where nothing seems to go your way. From the time you get out of bed in the morning, it seems like the deck is stacked against you. You feel like there's a dark cloud hanging over you no matter where you go, no matter what you do. You just can't wait for that day to come to an end. And and as you're driving yourself home from work and you're reviewing it all in your mind, you're just downright angry. Ever been there? You're saying, how how can you be angry leaving the church pastor? Doesn't happen often, but it happens sometimes. Today, as we conclude our series from the book of Jonah, Chapter four begins with Jonah thinking he's just experienced one of those days. And he's angry. Mind you, he's not angry at at circumstances or even people. No, Jonah, he's mad at God. And if you were with us last week, we left Jonah just after he had delivered God's message to the, the Assyrians in Nineveh. And they overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly responded by changing or turning away from their, their wicked lifestyle and by putting their trust and their faith in the Lord. In fact, it was probably one of the greatest uh, revivals, if you will, in the history of the world. And if this story had just ended at that moment, Jonah would have gone down in history as probably the world's greatest evangelist of all time, because to preach to hundreds of of thousands of people like he did and to turn to God, to inquire and to to, uh, ask them to turn to God, that is no small accomplishment. But this account of Jonah's life and ministry doesn't end here. Because it's not just a story about God's love for the Assyrians, the wicked Assyrians, I might add. This is also the story of his grace-driven love for an angry, pouting, immature prophet who thought he was having a terribly bad day. And when you look at this story from that perspective, you can clearly see that in chapter one, Jonah acted like a a prodigal son, but here in chapter four, he's acting more like the pouting elderly brother. Jonah is not at all happy that the Ninevites have repented of their sin and come home to God. So the, the, the story is not over because God's work is not yet complete. The Ninevites, They were doing fine up to this point, but Jonah wasn't doing fine. He needed a lot of work. You see, God is not satisfied with just our mere compliance to his will and the things that that he is calling us to do, which is apparently what he got from Jonah in chapter three. What God really wanted was for Jonah to value what he valued and God knew that that just had not happened yet. So take your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter four. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen behind me and you can follow along. Jonah chapter four, we will be reading verses one through 11 and I'll be reading from the New King James version this morning. Jonah four, one through 11, the scriptures say, but it it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." A little bit dramatic, wouldn't you think? Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plan. Verse seven, but as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, "'It is better for me to die than to live.' Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, Jonah, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you had not labored nor made it grow, which came up at night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and they're left, and much livestock. And that's the end of the book. Just ends there. And I have to admit that it's an unusual way of ending, because I think it leaves us wondering what happened to old Jonah. When you read this, you can feel Jonah's anger at the beginning of the chapter. He was steamed, and he wasn't steamed as his enemies, the Ninevites, but he was upset with God himself. To really catch this, you need to back up to the final verse in chapter three, that we read, chapter, uh, Jonah 3.10. It says, then God saw their works, the people of Nineveh, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do so. Well, this change of plans is specifically what upset Jonah so much. And he became angry. And he proceeded to prove that old statement true that says man is angriest when he is the most wrong. Because he blew his top at God even through scripture at God that was first written in Exodus 34 6 that's rewritten in verse 2 he says ah Lord was it not this what I said when I was still in my country therefore I fled previously to Tarshish for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness one who relents from doing harm first Jonah blamed God for his own attempted, rebellious escape to Tarshish. Then, instead of using this familiar text from from Exodus to to praise God, Jonah angrily uses it to complain and, and to accuse. He says, in essence, I left home because I knew this is exactly what you would do, God. I knew that you were a gracious and and compassionate God, slow to get angry and full of unfailing love. I knew how easily you would cancel your plans for destroying these wretched people who I loathe. Now look closely again at verse four, which which was God's gentle response to Jonah's temper tantrum. And he said, he asked, he says, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is it right? Here's the reason for this process that both believers and pastors included go through called sanctification. Because if I had been God, I would have vaporized Jonah at that moment. (laughs) I I would have had no time or patience for all of his nonsense and all of his drama. Thankfully, I'm not God. But our Lord, he has a long fuse when it comes to us, and I thank God for that. By the way, the verse that Jonah sarcastically quotes is something that Moses had written down some 500 years earlier. It was when he was up on the top of Mount Sinai uh, conferring with God, and while doing so, the Israelites who had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt were expressing their thanks to God by throwing a party but it was a party that was characterized by drunkenness and immorality, and they were worshiping a golden calf that had been created by a collection of gold remnants from everybody. And and when God informed Moses what was going on, he came down from that mountain, and he was so angry that he shattered those tablets of which the 10 Commandments were written upon. And at the same time, God was also angry, and he wanted to destroy the Israelites but in answer to Moses pleading on the behalf of the people he reconsidered. He even promised to give Moses a a new copy of the 10 Commandments. God took him back up on the top of Mount Sinai. And before he began dictating these moral imperatives a second time, he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed this in Exodus 34, 6. Translation's a little different, but it says, the Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, I believe that it is important to note this morning that the Bible makes clear on numerous occasions that like any good parent, God does get angry. But he puts up with a great deal from you and I before he ever reaches a boiling point, he is truly patient with us because he knows that we are just mere human beings. He doesn't expect us to be more than we can be, than we are capable of. In Psalm one hundred three fourteen, it says, "'For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust.' As our compassionate creator, God understands our tenuous nature. And he always factors in our frailty when he weighs out his responses to us. Which is why instead of vaporizing Jonah like I would have done, God patiently asked him a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now the word here that God uses for angry literally means to burn. So this is literally what God said, Jonah, do do you have any valid reason for being hot under the collar? Well, Jonah's only response at that point was like he did before, he stomped off, he went up into the hills where he could have a clear view of the city of Nineveh. Now understand, this is the second time that Jonah has fled his responsibilities as a prophet of God. And now he heads for the hills when instead he should be down there helping the freshly repentant Ninevites to learn more about the loving God who just spared their lives and who just spared their city. And then Jonah reached an elevation where he could see the entire city and he built himself kind of a little lean-to. And he used some leafy branches, something to shade himself from the severe desert heat, that Middle Eastern sun, which was pretty much a necessity because the average temperatures there in that region were very similar to to Phoenix in the summertime. And having lived there for about 25 years of my life, I'm telling you, it is hot. You think you got it bad here? Go live in Phoenix during the summer. Well, Jonah got as comfortable as he could and he proceeded to sit there and to look down on the Ninevites and he's thinking to himself, you just watch God. They're gonna go back to their wicked ways You'll see, you can never trust a Ninevite. Once a Ninevite, always a Ninevite. I'm gonna sit here until they mess up and then force you, God, to admit that you were wrong to save these wretched pagan people. You'll see that I'm justified in my anger at what you have done. In other words, Jonah chose to focus his view exclusively on the Ninevites when he should have been examining his own deeply flawed heart. Like many of us, he was more concerned with the splinter in his neighbor's eye than he was the railroad tie that was sticking out of his own. Well, as the day dragged on, the leaves on the branch of his shelter dried up and began to fall off. And because of this, Jonah began to get very hot perhaps adding to his discomfort was the sound still coming from the Ninevites in that city continuing to mourn and to pray for, for God's repentance. At this point, verse six says, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his mercy. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now the Hebrew word here, used here literally means to deliver him from his evil, which means that even this vine was just a tool that God used to free Jonah from his sinful attitude. Verse six also says that Jonah was very happy about the appearance of this vine. In fact, it's the only time in this entire book that that grumpy prophet was happy about anything. Maybe his mood improved, because he thought that that shady vine that God sent for him was a sign that maybe God was coming around to his way of thinking. But God wasn't done. He interceded once more, and he performed another miracle. This time, instead of summoning a huge fish, he called forth a tiny worm. And he did this so that it would eat the root of the vine, causing it to wilt and to ruin Jonah's shelter. Then he threw a storm at Jonah, but this time it was a desert windstorm that they refer to as a Sirocco. Now when these winds blow, the temperature rises dramatically, the humidity drops quickly, they say it's like being in a convection oven. The Septuagint accurately translates this sudden wind as a scorcher. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, Jonah, you insist on being hot under the collar. Well, here's just a little bit of help for you. Then as Jonah's frustration builds, God asks, is it right for you to be angry about a plant? And Jonah angrily replies, it is right for me to be angry, even unto death. (laughs) I can't help but think of William Shatner in that, one of his lines. So dramatic. Well, at this point, God has Jonah exactly where he wants him. God has used the vine, he has used the worm, he has used the wind, all as tools to show Jonah the absurdity of his demeanor to help him to understand his own confused heart. He wants to help Jonah to understand that he is so full of self-pity that he has no pity over the repentant Ninevites. Well, when the, the vine withered, Jonah's temper flared once again. And in response, God in essence was saying, Jonah, you are angry about this plant that was pretty much here today and gone tomorrow but Nineveh has over 120,000 children living in it. Now, if you can be as concerned about something as insignificant as a plant, then isn't it proper for me to be concerned about these people? That's really what it boils down to. I read a story written by a pastor that told about a time when Tony Campolo spoke at a pastor's conference. And while preaching his message, Campolo, angrily said to these pastors, yesterday 30,000 children around the world starved to death and you don't give a blankety blank, and he swore. And from the perspective of the pastor that wrote this, uh, this little article, he thought, oh, Tony, you shouldn't have said that. You're, you're gonna get all these ministers to rise up and to be mad at you. And he could see that the ministers were agitated by his cursing. But then he writes, just as all of us had moved to the edge of our seat in sort of a defensive posture, compiles, uh, uh, follows with this. The sad thing is you pastors are more upset that I said blankety blank than you are that 30,000 children starved yesterday in the world. He said that a, a silence fell over that room He said, and almost in unison, all of us pastors slunk back into our seats thinking he's right. How did our priorities get so mixed up? And when did we become so calloused to human need? And he went on to explain, and the reason for me telling you this story is that that it was an awkward silence just like that is how the book of Jonah ends, awkward silence. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God had the first word in this story, and now he has the final word as well. And this helps to explain the weird ending of chapter four, in that that Jonah doesn't reply simply because he can't. He can't say anything at this point. Just like the pastors at that conference, he was too busy taking his foot out of his mouth. By now, he could see how far off base that he had had been. So understand, God got through to the prophet Jonah in the end. In fact, I believe he wrote this no holes barred autobiographical book and ended this way to show all of us his repentance. That's my take on it anyway. There's a painting by Michelangelo. You'll find this very interesting. It's on the walls of the Sistine Chapel and it's called The Prophets and the Apostles. And in this painting, Michelangelo attempted to capture the faces of the great heroes of the Bible. Art critics say that out of all of the faces that Michelangelo illustrated that none had a more wonderful countenance than the face of Jonah. He painted Jonah that way because Michelangelo was convinced that Jonah did in fact see his sin and he did in fact change. He believed that Jonah became a communicator of grace to his own nation, and he did so by, first of all, writing the book of Jonah and telling his story, as well as by his continued preaching as a prophet of the one true God. Now, if we were all being honest this morning, I think we'd all have to admit that there's a little bit of Jonah in every one of us. As someone once said, our concern should not be whether a man can live inside a fish, but whether the spirit of Jonah lives inside of us. You see, at one time or another, every one of us have rebelled against God, just like Jonah did. We have, we have refused to do things God has asked us to do, and we have readily done things that God has told us not to do. We have also had our priorities all mixed up. And just like Jonah, we have frequently been more concerned about our own physical comfort than about God's purposes in this world. Let's face it. And just like Jonah did in this final chapter, many of us also have willfully fanned the flames of anger, even anger directed at God himself. And that's gonna be the main crux of what I wanna talk about today. Because anger is possible in any relationship even a relationship with our Creator. In fact, the closer that you are to someone, the more passionate you feel about each other, the more likely you are to get mad at that individual. So maybe you're here today and you've been mad at God over what seems to be the unfairness of life or perhaps of your own personal life. Or maybe you have loved ones or friends who are good people. They're God-fearing people, God-serving people who have suffered. Perhaps you have had children that have had to endure great pain or even children that have died prematurely. Maybe you've struggled financially your whole life. You can never seem to get ahead. Well, like Jonah, many of us have misplaced expectations of what we think God ought to do in certain situations. And when he didn't do those things that we thought God should do, we get mad at him. So the question is not, should we get mad at God? The the, the real question is, what do we do with our anger? How should we handle it? Now I am aware that the very idea of getting angry at God is enough to make some people very uncomfortable. In fact, some of you are already squirming in your seats. You're shifting around. Many of us feel that somehow it is not right to get angry at God. And even the idea seems blasphemous, the unforgivable sin to us. While at the same time, others are afraid to admit their angry feelings because they are intimidated by what they hear from the other Christians that feel the other way. They're given the impression that being angry at God is an unforgivable sin. They're often told this, no matter what happens, just thank God, keep praising him, keep a smile on your face at all times because God has a wonderful plan for your life and he doesn't need you second guessing it. In other words, if you don't feel like smiling at God, then fake it. But now because of all of this, we've we've got a problem. On one hand, we have times in life when some of us are angry with God. And on the other hand, we have people who think it's totally unacceptable to be angry at God. So what is the natural result? It's very simple. People will paper over their emotions. We do that in life all the time. And we do it with God. When we experience anger because we feel like God's been unfair or when, he's been unsil- or when he's been silent or when he has been unresponsive, we do that kind of stuff and we keep our emotions inside. And then we walk around and we, we paste on a phony smile. And really folks, that just aggravates the problem. I say that because when you bury your anger, guess what? You bury it alive, not dead. It's still alive. It doesn't go away and inevitably it will crawl out in other forms in your life. Think about it in terms of your other relationships in life. If you're angry with a friend or with a relative or with a spouse and you don't deal with anger, what happens? All communication stops, doesn't it? We don't wanna to talk to those people because we're mad at those people. We give them the silent treatment and we withdraw. And eventually, if nothing is done, we begin to feel distant from them. Well, the same thing is true in our relationship with God. So ask yourself a very important question this morning, as I have asked myself. Could the reason that you stopped praying and reading the Bible or enjoyed worship be due to some unexpressed anger? that you have toward your heavenly father? Maybe it's over some perceived uh, uh, injustice or unfairness, like I say, in the world or in your own personal life. Maybe you secretly blamed God because uh, 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 you married a man who said that he was a Christian, but he ended up being abusive and he ended up walking out on you. Maybe it was the other way around. You married a Christian woman you thought was the woman of your dreams, and she turned out being abusive to you and leaving you. Maybe you're harboring a, a lingering resentment because your parents divorced when you were a child, and it's really messed up your thinking in your life, or a loved one that you cared about deeply, suffered, and died, and God didn't stop or prevent their death. Maybe you have accused and convicted and sentenced God because you feel he has let you down in some crucial point in your life. Or maybe you've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life like Jonah is thinking that he's having. And because of that, you blame God because you think if he really cared about you, that he would do something about it. Well, if that's true, then you really need to listen this morning. Because one thing that we can learn from Jonah is that it is okay to express our honest emotions to God, yes, even when we're angry. Actually, it can be even advisable. And I'm gonna show you some biblical examples. But first, I wanna start by reading a quote from theologian Dr. Gilbert Balzilkian. He said, God is a big boy. He can handle your anger. It won't threaten him or diminish him or embarrass him, and really it won't even surprise him since as Psalm 4421 says, he already knows the secrets of, your, of our hearts. You see, when you're dealing with the pain and the confusion and the frustration over the difficulties and the seemingly unfairness of life, God understands. He knows that we are people with messy emotions living in a messy world. I mean, he created us after all, and he also sent his son to live among us. And I'm not saying this morning that God deserves our anger because he does not. I'm not saying that he has done something wrong or he is somehow at fault or that our anger is justified. I am simply saying that he understands our anger. He understands when our pain causes us to be unreasonable and accusatory and confused. And just like a true friend, he wants us to bring it to him. And he wants us to talk it out. God is compassionate and he's not condemning. So we must feel free to be honest in our relationship with him, even to the point of being painfully honest. In fact, the Bible records some of the heroes of faith who did this. Listen to these angry words from Moses in Exodus 5, through 23. Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. And here's God's spokesman, Jeremiah, actually accusing God of deceiving him in Jeremiah 27 through 11. Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. King David didn't shy away from venting his frustrations toward God either. Listen to Psalm 13, one through three. How long Lord will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Do you see that these men were being honest. They were expressing their real feelings to the Lord instead of pasting on some kind of a superficial smile. And guess what? God didn't destroy them for that. On the contrary, he added their conversations with him. It is in the Bible for us to read, for us to understand, for us to learn and to grow from and to build confidence from. It is a confidence that we will likewise find God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, even when we're venting our anger at him. So back to my question, what should we do when like Jonah, we're mad at God? Author Lee Strobel suggests three things that I'd like to share with you this morning. First of all, he says, pray it through, pray about it. This is a difficult first step to take because as I said a moment ago, when you're mad at somebody, your natural inclination is to pull back and to avoid talking to them altogether. Like Jonah, when we are angry at God, we give him the silent treatment. But that just makes matters worse for us because we're cutting ourselves off from our very source, the very one who can comfort us through the pain and the confusion that we are experiencing at that moment. Mark Middleburg offers a suggestion when you find yourself at this place, when he writes this, if you don't feel like praying, talk to God about it. In other words, go to God and say, I don't feel like talking to you and here's why and then finish the sentence. Or say, God, I feel mad at you right now, and here's the problem, and keep on going. When you pray, forget formality, forget the these and the thous, forget complete sentences, forget trite phrases and cliches, forget the phoniness. And if you need to, forget trying to hold back the tears. Just be brutally honest. If you can't pray, write God a letter, but tell God how you feel. You see, anger towards God causes us to slip back into our sinful ways whenever we try to hide our anger from him. And here's something we've got to understand. God is not afraid of your and my honesty. He doesn't run from it. He's not afraid of it. He's there to receive it and to help you. And he can certainly heal your heart. But only if you speak to him truthfully Remember that honesty breeds intimacy and it deepens and it strengthens relationships. I mean, after you've honestly and openly worked through your anger or your disagreement with a friend of some kind, don't you feel closer? You do. One man who had been a Christian for 17 years said he got mad at God because of the deep sadness he felt over the loss of someone in his life. Listen to his words. I was driving somewhere and pounded my fist on the steering wheel and the dash of my car, and I yelled at God for forcing me to give up what I had lost. I cried and I grieved. It was only after that that I was able to talk to God in a more controlled manner. But as you pray through it, church, don't make Jonah's mistake. What I mean is that Jonah vented his anger at God, but for him, prayer was a one-sided venture. He didn't hang around to see what it was that God would speak back to him in return. You see, when you listen to God, you'll discover that when you pour out your raw feelings, first of all, he doesn't strike you down. Instead, he offers compassion and comfort and answers to you. So come to see that God is on your side. He isn't watching from afar what's going on in your life in a calloused, or some kind of a a disinterested way. If you listen, God will remind you of something very, very important. He has already made the choice to voluntarily join us in our pain. He joined us through the suffering and the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent on our behalf. As one author said, in Christ, God suffered alone, utterly and completely alone, so that you and I would never have to suffer alone and what happens after this time of honest prayer is a kind of realization begins to take root within you in fact you remember a few minutes ago when i read david's angry response and his anguish at the beginning of psalm 113 well after he got that off his chest listen to how he finished psalm 13 verse 5 through 6 Remember, I had veins pointing out of of my head while I was reading that to you. Now he's saying, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. See, David needed to process his anger first before he was able to reacquaint himself in God's love for him. So first, you pray it through. And then secondly, you think it through. By that, I mean, spend time to think about what is actually behind your anger. I believe that Jonah did this after God asked him that last question. And as he thought about all that had happened, he realized how selfish and how foolish he he had been. He realized that he was trying to control God as some kind of a cosmic genie in a bottle. He saw the plant's purpose was to teach him that his priorities were completely messed up. And Jonah also saw how gentle God had been with him throughout this. He realized how steadfast God's love had been toward him in spite of his childish behavior. And when we are angry with God, we need to do the same thing. We need to stop reacting emotionally long enough to rationally process what's going on, what is happening. You know, many people who stop and think, they will come to to the realization that they're mad at God because they believe that he broke some kind of a promise to them. When in truth, God never really made you a promise in that at all. For example, God has never promised that following him would always be a pleasant, problem-free journey. In fact, Jesus came right out and said this in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I remember back many years ago when I was mad at God. We had a relative who ran into some financial troubles, and they were going to lose their home, and they reached out to Lisa and I, and after getting all of the details and talking with a banker, we realized, because of our strong credit rating, that we could refinance their mortgage. It wasn't going to cost us any money out of our pocket, and uh, it would give our relatives the ability to stay in their home. And through this program, when we could show after a year of them making their payments on time, that they could refinance the home back into their own name. Well, several months into this, my relative, the man of the couple, died unexpectedly. And he left a wife and he left a child. And we found ourselves in a mess. We thought we were doing the Christ-like thing. We thought that we were helping somebody who really needed a hand up but it ended up costing us dearly. You see, because of our excellent credit rating, we qualified for the loan, but there was no way that we could afford to pay two mortgages on that loan. And that's what the banks will do. They'll approve you for stuff that they know you can't afford because you have strong credit and they feel like you're not gonna have any problem. Well, we did. We couldn't afford to continue making the payments on that house. And then right after that, the market crashed. You remember back in, was it the 90s, late 90s? the market crashed and the value of the house, what value it had plummeted. We couldn't sell it for what was owed. We couldn't even find someone to buy it on a short sale. And if we had tried to keep that home afloat, we would have lost our own home. So eventually we had to turn it over to the bank and my excellent credit rating took a big hit, our credit rating and years after it was all over, get this, I was sued by the mortgage insurance company That's where I learned whenever you have a loan that requires you to have mortgage insurance on the loan, it protects the bank, not the borrower. You can't make your payments, the insurance company makes those payments for you, but then they come back and they sue you for, the insurance company sues you for what they had to pay. They sued us for over $25,000. I have a friend who's an attorney who got involved in it and we were able to negotiate it down to $13,000 in order to remedy a really bad situation. It was a situation where we thought we were doing something good. And I remember being really angry with God. I remember thinking, so this is how you protect your children. God, I was trying to do something good. Sounded like Jonah here, aren't I? And now this, you've got to be kidding me. And through all my wranglings with God, He showed me how We never even asked him about this before we did it. It's family, it's just what you do. It's the right thing to do. I never prayed and said, God, do you think this is okay? Do you think we should do this? We didn't pray about it. We didn't seek his guidance. We just did what humanly we thought was a good thing to do. We just assumed that that a good deed didn't need God's approval and how wrong we were because there were so many other ways we could have helped our family without putting ourselves, myself and my family on the line to fail because it was not God's will for us to do what we did. We could have given them money to get them into an apartment. I didn't have to put my, my name on a mortgage to save a stinking house. He never made any promises to me regarding what we were doing because I didn't ask him. And if I asked, I am certain that he would have made clear to me, just like he has made clear to me so many other things in my life, exactly what I was to do. And I remember coming to the realization of how prideful I was for me to think that I deserve some kind of supernatural bailout for my own stupidity, or the fact that I thought I might actually be special enough as a pastor to live a pain-free life. Well, I have since come to to see just how faithful God has been to me and how his strength is made perfect in my own weakness. I also learned that I need to not work on self-sufficiency, but I need to work on God's sufficiency. That season that we went through helped me so much to see something that is very important It is better to endure the storms of life with Christ than to sail on smooth waters without him. So point number one, pray it through. Point number two, think it through. And finally, number three, talk it through. Don't be like Jonah and go off by yourself and build a lean-to and pout. Get with other Christians especially those who have endured tough times, who have walked the same road of anger and frustration and confusion that you are on. I think this is one of the reasons that Hebrews 10.25 tells us not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Meeting together has tremendous benefits. And many who participate in our small groups or other ministry gatherings at High Point have discovered this truth. For example, let's take our ladies' Bible study that meets here on Monday mornings. That that thing is busting loose. I am hearing so many good things coming out of that group, and I am certain that that group includes women, who have experienced tough times in their life. With some of them, I am sure, having experienced anger at God. And they come together and they study God's word together to encourage one another and to help each one out and to remind each other of God's promises. And like any small group or group that gets together to study God's word and talk about life's issues, I believe that they have found that there is great healing that comes from talking one another especially with others who have suffered the same pain that you have suffered. And I'm telling you, that is what Christian community is all about. So when you feel angry at God, pray through it, and then think through it, and then talk through it. You get past this stage where your hand is balled up in a fist and gradually it opens up to an outstretched arm to the hand that's already reaching to you to give you help. When this happens, God pours out his courage and his peace into your life. Scott, will you guys come forward to help me to close this down? I want you to understand something this morning. Life is full of things that cause us great frustration. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that God stands ready to tenderly help us deal with those tough times. And when we go through them, he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He is there through every moment of it, offering us strength in order to endure it all. And this should be a reminder, this should be a wake up call that Jesus gave it all in order to save us and he continues to give it all, especially through our difficult times, because giving is his nature. It's just what he does. Today being the first Sunday of the month, we are going to remember that day that Jesus gave it all for you and I. When on that cross, he died a a horrific death and he bore our sins. And he took the punishment that was deserved for us and he took it upon himself to make us whole it's how he provided us with a pathway to be reconciled to god the father so that we could be forgiven of our sin and that's when we received that fresh start that we talked about last week at length jesus made clear That we must always remember that moment we must remember what he did for us it is something that we can never forget and that's what communion is about when we take communion we are acknowledging that jesus body was broken so that our body could be made whole and that by his stripes we are healed We also acknowledge that the shed blood of Jesus is what cleanses us of our sin and it redeems us from the curse of death through eternal life in Christ Jesus. But it isn't just a time that we acknowledge. It is also a time where we remember. It is also a time where we celebrate. And it's something that we should never, the Bible says, participate in in a casual way. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 through 29 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This scripture tells us not to participate in communion, in a casual, unworthy manner. This means if anyone does so without recognizing Jesus, that that individual brings judgment upon themselves and is guilty of sinning against the, the body and the blood of Jesus. The scripture also instructs us to examine ourselves. That means that we look deep into our hearts and we see if there is anything that needs to be corrected, anything that needs to be confessed. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, if you've turned away from God, is, and, and even within the context of today's message, if you are angry at God for any reason, all of those things can be cleared up this morning. Because before we take communion, we're gonna have a moment of quiet prayer. And if you are here today or you're watching online and you have never received Jesus, as Lord and savior of your life, you can receive salvation today. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So simply pray and tell Jesus that you believe he is the son of God. He is the only way to God the Father and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to make you a new creation, to be the Lord of your life. The Bible says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you of all sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if every one of us in this place and everybody who is watching online would reach out to God and pray at this moment, we could all participate in this this moment together, this sacred moment together, and do it in a worthy manner as not to eat or drink judgment upon ourselves, as the scripture says. During this time of silent prayer, I want everyone in this place to pray to God in your own way and in your own words. And then we will serve the communion emblems. Let's bow our heads and pray quietly meditate with God. Father, you've heard our words. More importantly, you've read our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, may the joy of what you have done for us be outwardly seen by others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like the ushers to come forward, pass out the communion emblems. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested later to be crucified, he had one final meal with his disciples and Jesus took the bread. And after he had given th- God thanks for it, he broke it. And the breaking of the bread symbolized the breaking of his body, which was soon to be broken. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It goes on to say that by his stripes, we are healed. So when he breaks the bread, he gives a piece to each one of them. And he says, this is my body which was broken for you, whenever you do this, he said, do so in remembrance of me. So as you eat this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered, beaten beyond recognition body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and and that by his stripes, you are healed. You may eat of the bread. Then he took the cup, which represented his blood, that was soon to be spilled it was it is the blood that atones for the sin of the world it is the cleansing agent for our sin and he says this cup represents a new covenant of my blood as often as you drink of this remember this day remember what i am doing for you as you drink of this juice i want you to remember the precious body that poured out of the sinless Lamb of God, the Son of God. You may drink. Please stand as we sing. Amazing
1: grace, how sweet the sound That saved the breath like me
0: You bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could be assured eternal life in your presence, either when you come or when our time on this earth ends. And we thank you for that. And we remember this today. Father, I also thank you for your word Thank you for a prophet named Jonah who lived thousands of years ago, who can teach us so much, showed us our humanity, showed us our immaturity. We learn so much about ourselves as we read about others because we're really no different than they. But most importantly, we thank you for your tenderness, your love towards us, your unfailing love towards us, and your compassionate grace We just thank you, Lord, that in spite of ourselves, you love us. Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your spirit would guide and direct our lives, our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be intended to build people up, not tear them down, that we would shine bright lights as bright lights in a very dark world. And of course that brightness is your love that shines through us. Let it be so strong that people would be compelled to ask what it is that's different about us and that we can explain that it is love of Christ. And then we'll have an opportunity to share your goodness with them. I pray that even this week, Lord, you'd give each one of us a a God-ordained moment where someone comes across our path and we can share your goodness with them and lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you'll keep us safe from sickness, from disease, from any accidents that may befall us until we meet together again and we come back and worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the presence of your spirit, not just within us, but in this place so strongly today. We thank you, God, for what you're doing in this church and in this community. And we just give you all praise and honor and glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.
1: My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my savior.